All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. Joining me today is an internationally recognized Venezuelan economist who serves as president of the Venezuelan Alliance and is a fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's a syndicated columnist and has guest lectured on Venezuela at Harvard and other universities such as NYU, Maryland, and Cambridge University in the UK. He's been crucial in organizing the international community and its efforts to achieve political change in Venezuela. And having returned to Venezuela, he can personally attest to what living in Venezuela is truly like. So I'm looking forward to having him share his research and his personal experience with you all. With that, I'd like to introduce Jorge Raizati. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you, Rafael. Uh, thank you for everyone who is listening to this podcast. So before we get started with your personal experience and uh, your situation right now, I want to get a feel for your background. I really want to hear more than anything else, your background, apart from being an economist, because you started out as a student activist in Venezuela. So let's start off talking about that. Could you share with our listeners the role of this student-led movement in Venezuela that you were a part of, this, uh, as we call it in Spanish, the Movimiento Estudiantil? Yes, of course. I mean, I'm 24 years old right now. So as millions of young people back in the year 2013 or 2014, uh, we were eager to make a change in Venezuela. So we were protesting, we were talking to people, we were organizing elections. And that's when I began involved in politics. Let's say I was 15 or 16 years old. And for the people that are not Venezuelans who are listening, the student movement in Venezuela at the time was crucial because at the time, the protest, the organization, um, everything was from the bottom up. It was led by the people, by the young people who really wanted a change. Because I remember at the time, that was all we were asking for. We wanted free and fair elections. We wanted uh, an economy that offers us jobs and the opportunity to build our future here in Venezuela. Uh, to have a family, to have a home, a career. And I remember at the time, that was what I was doing. I was a, an activist, a young activist. Uh, I was in high school, I remember at the time. I want to go back to the point of the protests that you mentioned earlier. And I want to look at it more in depth. If people remember, the protests in Venezuela made international news in 2017 in 2019, shortly after the swearing-in of interim President Juan Guaido, and then they seem to die down. Based on what you've seen on the ground, what factors could you say attribute right now to the fact that we're not really seeing a lot of protests uh, make the sort of news that they were making before this year? What, what exactly are the factors that are contributing to that more than anything else? Sure. Uh, the protests I was mentioning at the beginning it was the 2014 protest okay. um, that we had from January of that year until the middle of that year. And I remember at the time, even though we already had political prisoners, even though in February uh, Leopoldo Lopez was jailed, for instance, I remember I was uh, 16 or 17 years old and I 
I was with Leopoldo like two weeks before, and not myself, like we were like 20 or 30 young activists. And I remember just, just looking at the guy and going to jail and I was inspired by him, by his patriotism, and by his mission. And like me, millions of people went to the streets, uh, not only for him and his vision, but for the country. And so in response to your question, why you're not seeing these protests today, is because a combination of multiple factors. The first one is that the repression in 2014, in 2017, was brutal. Hundreds of people going to jail. Mm -hmm. Of course, the people who were killed in 2017, especially. And that's the first factor. The second factor is that there is an skepticism, a skepticism of people that there will actually be a political change. And there is a lack of trust in the current leadership, in the current opposition leadership, sadly. And the third, the third factor is that because of the humanitarian crisis, people are really focused on putting food on their tables. People are really focused on trying to survive. People are not talking about politics, but rather talking about if they're going to move to Colombia or to the United States or to Spain. So the conversation has shifted a lot from 2014 or 2017 to uh, today. Right. And I'd like to make an aside note that, yeah, I had forgotten to mention the 2014 protests, but they were equally as repressive as the protests from 2017. And I think you're right. That does contribute, unfortunately, to a sort of lackluster enthusiasm from individuals who might want to go out and protest, but might not see it really lead to anything. But not just the epidemic of repression that doesn't seem to go away despite the circumstances economically in Venezuela. I'd like to talk a little bit about that as well, because as bad as the situation was in the beginning of the year and in years past, it's only worsened with the spread of coronavirus. With COVID, not only has the situation worsened economically, but the strict measures that are imposed by the state have also gotten worse. So could you talk to us about how the state has responded in trying to impose lockdowns on Venezuelans nationwide? Yes, I think that um, you are completely right. The COVID-19 crisis has worsened the situation dramatically. And the mismanagement of the government of the crisis as well. In Venezuela, we have a different kind of lockdown, a very strict, rigid type of lockdown. It's called 7 by 7. In one week, there is a semi-rigid lockdown, and in the next one, there is a strict lockdown. In the strict lockdown, most businesses cannot open, and food businesses, food-related businesses, can only open until 1 or 2 p.m. And you combine that, there is restriction from moving from one uh, state to the next one. There's a ton of restrictions. And if you combine that with the fuel crisis that the country has been experiencing this year, that has really decimated the already compromised Venezuelan economy. So people, despite that there is a pandemic going on, people need to go to work. And the government seems, seems not to understand that. So the situation is, of course, horrible in that, in that regard. Right. It, it's very, very important to point out. You had actually put out a, an article a couple of days ago talking about the, the severe fuel shortage in Venezuela. And it's important to point out and just emphasize two things. 
Number one, that Venezuela, despite being the country with the largest oil reserves in the world, is having to import gasoline because it cannot refine or produce its own gasoline from the world's largest supply of oil reserves. Number two, and this is just an aside, but there's no fuel in Venezuela, but the Maduro regime, even at this stage, goes above and beyond to send subsidized fuel to Cuba. I mean, that's like a father spending all his money on prostitutes while his kids start to <laughs> starve to death. It's, it's an ugly comparison, but it's true. Um, yeah. And let's not forget also the role that Iran plays in this, because even though Cuba is a recipient, the supplier is Iran. And that's something that you really made the crux of the matter in your article. So for our listeners, can you explain Iran's role in being the supplier of oil or of gasoline, excuse me, to Venezuela and how we even got to this situation where Venezuela is even having to depend on Iran in the first place? Yes. I mean, the, the Maduro regime and, and, and the Chavez regime before him, because he really was the one who started this mess in the Venezuelan oil industry, mm -hmm. uh, they made the impossible. They turned the oil-rich Venezuela into a country urgent and desperate for fuel. So right now, in Venezuela, PDVSA, the oil industry, is only producing about 7,000 barrels of gasoline per day. That is nothing, because the capacity of the industry is over a million. It's 1.3 million. I mean, over in 2005, we were just producing that, a million barrels. And because our domestic consumption was 200,000, so we had plenty to use and to export. But today, we have that because they destroy the industry. We are not refining enough gasoline. We need to import gasoline, as paradoxical as it sounds. And the rest of the supply comes from smuggling from Colombia. Between five and 15,000 barrels per day comes from smuggling. And these people sell the gasoline for like $2 per air per liter, which is like $8 per gallon. And it's $8 a gallon? Yes. And wow. a staggering price. A staggering price for a country that I think that's the minimum wage that we have currently. Less. Even less. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or, or I'm sorry, I should say, I yeah. should say it's more, more than the minimum wage because right now it's below five dollars. So that's exactly. unbelievable. I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is why I wrote this article at National Review a couple of days ago, uh, because the solution of the Venezuelan regime has been to make an alliance with the Iranian regime to import gasoline. So this began in May when they import 1.4 million barrels. Then they tried again in August, but the U.S. ceased uh, that shipment. And then they, do it, they did it again last month. And the shipment arrived between the last week of September and the first week of October. The new shipment has over a million barrels of gasoline, plus 2 million of blending agents to also boost production. So that's the situation right now. Uh, they are importing this gasoline from Iran, the gasoline is going through African seas to avoid U.S. sanctions. The shipment has turned off their radars, and, and it's really a costly, complex situation, a geopolitical mess. That uh, in that article, I also mentioned that the U.S. Has, has some fault because the U.S. sanctions prohibit Venezuela from doing business with virtually all countries. So then I think that also creates incentives for Iran and Venezuela to partner in this way. Because, for example, two years ago, Venezuela was importing fuel from the States 
and a year ago it was importing fuel from Europe doing swap agreements. They were giving oil to Europe and Europe was giving gasoline to Venezuela. But neither of those transactions are possible today because of the U.S. sanctions. Right. And that's something that I want to touch on in a little bit. But before I do, I think just as an aside note, it's important for me to emphasize uh, for my listeners something that Jorge pointed out that, yes, while the situation has worsened under the Maduro regime, it was really Hugo Chavez who set up the mechanisms to allow his cabal of executives and recipients of under the table contracts to pillage the state. And it was only functioning when the price was super high. When Chavez was president, for example, in 2008, the price of a barrel of crude oil peaked at at least 140 something dollars. And for most of his time in office, after that, it was above $100. So when they could produce around 400, or excuse me, 4 million to 5 million barrels per day, you're talking about at least $400 million made every day. That's tens of millions of dollars per hour. And you would think that that would go towards improving the infrastructure of the oil and gas industry. But no, all of that went straight to the government because they nationalized the oil and gas industry. I mean, they had done that before, but they essentially enriched themselves in the process. Imagine how much has been robbed by that same government in the last 22 years. And so now we're at a point where because we don't have the manpower, the brain power, or just the general capacity to refine the oil or even extract it at this point, we're now having to smuggle from neighboring Colombia and we're producing less than the entire state of North Dakota. So it's just a disgraceful situation that we've no, reached. And it's, and it's really important because uh, to be precise in the numbers, in, the, in just the huge oil bonanza that Chavez received, Venezuela earned in oil exports almost a trillion dollars in revenues. That is a staggering number because oil prices increased by 500% during the Chavez administration. And what happened with that money? They didn't invest it in the real economy, nor in the oil sector. And that's why production started to decline during the Chavez administration. When this started, this started in 2003, in 2002, when Chavez started firing people from PDVSA. I think he fired uh, 13,000 workers because his objective was to politicize the industry because the industry before him was already owned by the state, but it was not politicized. He politicized the industry. So all the, the revenues of the industry went towards his social programs, his clientele programs, and bad subsidies, bad subsidies for the rich and for the poor. It's unbelievable just how much was pillaged from the coffers of the state. And it's led not just to a gasoline crisis, but to a crisis in general infrastructure, because it goes well beyond gas, yes. as you know, Jorge. It's now public transport, phone lines, public utilities, water, power. And that's something I, I also wanted to ask about, because I know that there's still a lingering power crisis. So Talk to the audience, if you could, about just how bad it really is. Because as I understand, they're having to ration electricity in parts of the country where people are only seeing a couple of hours a day of usage of electricity. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's horrible. I told you that two weeks ago I was in Barinas, which is another state in Venezuela. And in the house that, that I was staying, there were some days in which we have more hours without electricity than we, with electricity. It, it, it's insane. And as you said, it's with all public services. It's with water. Most people in Venezuela do not have water. It's with electricity. It's with phone signal. It's with the internet. And you mentioned why people cannot organize and protest. Part of it is the misinformation and the lack of information. How can you inform yourself when most of the day you don't have electricity, or if you have electricity, you don't have the internet, or if you have the internet, you don't have a laptop because it's too expensive. And of course, traditional media outlets are also all controlled by the regime. So all these things uh, have a connection with, with each other. And the situation of electricity specifically, it's horrible for businesses as well. It raises the transaction cost for everyone. It's horrible for the economy. And as you said, almost a trillion dollars in all revenue. What happened with that? Why they didn't reinvest it? Uh, because they were focused on maintaining political power rather than using that money to increase economic efficiency, as any normal government will do. Right. That regime continues to be rife with corruption, but this is something, again, that predates the Maduro regime. It was perfected under Chavez, and now the costs are being shouldered not by them, but by the Venezuelan people themselves, where, like you said, everything is just too expensive, even food. And that's something else that I wanted to ask. Is it possible for employees with the salary that they receive to buy food, or has that itself also just become too expensive? I, I look, I, I read the other day a study that says that on average, workers in the private sector are earning $30 per month. And on average, workers in the public sector earn $17 or $18 per month. Uh, of course, the minimum wage is way less than that, but on average. And with that, you cannot afford food because I think most food here in Venezuela is even expensive than in other places. Because lack of competition, increased transaction costs, increased risk, the, the destruction of the Venezuelan national agriculture. So it's, it's really difficult for most people. For really the vast majority of people, it's really difficult. And I think that is illustrated in the latest statistics about it, in which it says that 96% of people are below the poverty line. I think 79% of people are below the extreme poverty line, mm-hmm. and in which... I think it was 60% of Venezuelans that consume less than 2,000 calories per day. So I think all those numbers exemplify that in Venezuela we are living a horrible humanitarian crisis because people do not have food on their table, because they don't have electricity, because people do not have a, a good work, a career. It's, a, it's really a frustrating situation because this is a country that a generation ago was a prosperous country, a democratic country. It, we had our issues, like most developing countries. But it was a country going into the right direction. But things change, and hopefully we'll be that country again. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I'm often reminded of a quote when I think about what you're saying. A quote from Ronald Reagan that I think applies perfectly to the situation in Venezuela. He said, freedom is a fragile thing and it's never more than one generation from extinction. And I think that rings so true with Venezuela because 
we were once the richest country in Latin America in the 1970s, and now we're the poorest in the entire hemisphere, according to that same study that you mentioned earlier. And this yeah. study, I want to point out to the listeners, did not come from the state. This is not some regime that goes out and collects data in good faith. They are not interested whatsoever in the social welfare of their people. No, these are basic statistics that are not published by the regime and in fact are collected by NGOs. So we as Venezuelans are having to come up with different ways to try and collect data to pick up on the social trends and the socioeconomic status of Venezuelans. One of the ones that I wanted to ask you about, Jorge, and it's called, are you familiar with the Café con Leche Index? Oh, yes. <laughs> so for my listeners, the Café con Leche Index is, it's an index that was created by Bloomberg to try and measure inflation. And they do that by trying to figure out how much a cup of coffee might cost in you know your typical cafe in Caracas. And right now, just to give you an idea of how bad it is, the most recent price for a cup of coffee in Caracas, Venezuela, is 350,000 bolivars. Just three months ago, that was, uh, it's an increase from 284%. The rate of inflation, according to this Café con Leche Index, has been 2,400%. So imagine just how high or at what rate these prices continue to climb, and there's no sign of them slowing down. Yeah, and I when I go to to buy stuff every week, I can see that. I can see that when I'm buying uh, meat, when I'm buying egg, when I'm buying milk, uh, I can see that, and I can sense it. I can sense the increase every single week. Uh, it's unbelievable, and at the end of the day, that's what hurts people the most. Uh, it creates uncertainty on their budget. People cannot save. Um, of course, right now, there is a process of dollarization of the economy that has at least mitigated some of the problems related to uh, to hyperinflation. But as you said, it, it's horrible. The cost of living in Venezuela is not what it used to. It's really expensive. And of course, when you compare it with the wages, it's even worse. But there are a ton of stuff that I used to buy in the States or where I, when I live in Spain that were cheaper in those places and that are more exp that are expensive uh, here in Venezuela. So that gives you a sense that of the difference. And just to give the listeners an idea of how incompetent this regime is in responding with economic policy, in 2018, they decided that the best way to tackle hyperinflation was to hack off a number of zeros from the uh, from the national currency. I think it was six zeros five that were zeros. removed. Oh, five. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And given the circumstances right now, where again, I think it's important for me to point out. Let me repeat: the price of a cup of coffee in Caracas has jumped from fourteen thousand bolivares bolivars to three hundred and fifty thousand, which is a two thousand four hundred percent increase in just one year. Instead of trying to liberalize the economy, instead of trying to provide some semblance of stability for the people, what does the Venezuelan Central Bank decide to do? They decide to come out with the biggest bank note yet. I think it's a 100,000 Bolivar note, right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. But here's the thing. The actual notes are worth 
32 cents. So they're worth less than the paper that they're printed on. So it, it's just mind boggling to me, just the lack of wherewithal that these people have that are in charge. And part of me thinks that it's just clumsiness, but it also is, is uh, sort of a complicitness on their part, not wanting to provide real solutions solutions that we know work because they they keep trying these sorts of measures treating the central bank like a printing machine essentially thinking that that's going to solve the problem when clearly it's not yes i mean the situation is really frustrating um that year that you mentioned 2018 the hyperinflation rate was over a million percent per year so uh tell me this Jorge, how do people survive if they have no real income. Again, if the monthly average, I think you said in the private sector is, uh, uh, remind me again, you said yeah, somewhere. That's, that's right. That's right now over 30 bucks per month. And in the public sector is, I think, a little bit less than $20 per, per month. So how do people survive if they have such little income? I mean, wh- what do they do? It just, wh- wh- what else can they rely on? Look, uh, the reality for most people, for the overwhelming majority of people here is the following. Let's say that there are two people working in the household. Let's say that. So let's say that they're lucky enough to collect, let's say $60 per month. And let's say that they have a, a cousin or a son living in Colombia or in Madrid that can send them another 50 or another 100 per month. And let's say that you receive the government uh, box of food called the CLAP, the subsidy of food. So that's the reality of, of most people. They only spend on food. They only spend what they have. They eat what they can, very cheap food. And a lot of uh, a lot of arepa, a lot of bread, not meat, not good type of uh, protein, and that's the mass majority of people. And the situation right now, today, it's easier in some way than even two years ago because of the process of dollarization. But that's the that's the crude and the horrible reality that people what they earn is for food, is for the cheapest food that they can. If they have someone in another country that can send them money, that's also good. Uh, and that's it. It's a horrible reality. It's a reality in which people cannot buy things or cannot invest in things in which people cannot cannot really live a normal life because that's, that's the bare minimum that I want for my country. I want a country in which people can go out and go to the movies and people of 20 years old can have girlfriends and they can go out and eat in a restaurant and where people can have jobs, jobs that are fulfilling, jobs that give them a career. And that's right now not happening in Venezuela. People are literally in survival mode. You had cut off, unfortunately, a little bit. Um, And I think that the fact that you had unfortunately cut off is testament to just how bad the situation over there is because it affects connectivity. Venezuela has according to studies that have been published this year and last year, so this is as of last year, has the slowest internet speeds in the entire hemisphere, worse than Cuba. I just want to point that out, worse than Cuba. So having this sort of situation where people have no other recourse but to maintain themselves subjugated by the state, 
they essentially have to depend on them for their survival. That's for unemployment benefits as well. And when we talk about those benefits, those are received through the Homeland card, right? The Carnet de la Patria. Yes. A ton of benefits come from there directly. Other benefits come from the club, uh, boxes of food. And I think there's, a, there's another program that I forgot the name. Yeah, I think all of those revolve around the Carnet de la Patria. I had done some research on this, and the Carnet de la Patria is, um, it's not something that we've talked about that much on this podcast, but believe me, listeners, we're going to get to it because I think it is the ugliest form of social control on this side of the world. I would say worldwide, but we're only beat by China's social credit system. But the reality is that the Carnet de la Patria is a way of social control. They know where you live through it, who you live with, what you eat, what political party you like, if you use your own car, if you use uh, public transportation, and now if you have COVID-19 and what doctor you use. So it's sort of like a classic authoritarian exchange, if you yes. will, whereby you submit your information and you surrender your liberty and your individual autonomy. And in exchange, they provide I wouldn't even say a sufficient standard of living because they provide the bare minimum as the gold standard. And it goes back to your point, Jorge. Yes, where... and su super quick. Uh, and just to put gasoline, you also need to register yourself and your car under uh, another Sistema Patria, another Patria system. And you even need to put your finger uh, on, a, on a machine and everything. That's right. And also, you can only get gasoline on certain days, right? According to the last number of your national ID card? Yes, it's every five days. And you can put exactly my, my last and my, my plate number. The last number is number nine. So, in fact, I needed to put today. <laughs> but uh, and it didn't go, obviously. Unbelievable. So, I, I just want the listeners to understand just the extent to which the Venezuelan people are beholden to this regime, an illegitimate one at that. So, before we actually talk a little bit about the politics of the situation over there, first, I want to get a sense of the the thoughts, the, the general mindset of the Venezuelan people. We had talked a little bit before the interview about the politics of the country and as a Venezuelan living outside of the country, I think we're afforded the luxury to stay on top of things. I think luxury is, excuse me, I think time is a luxury that is severely underappreciated here in, um, in the United States and in other Western democratic countries where we're, again, afforded that luxury, that privilege to yeah. comment on politics to the extent that we do. In Venezuela, it's different because we're not necessarily on top of the politics. The people over there are on top of the policies. So what are the regulations that are going to affect whether or not they can eat? What are the regulations that are going to affect whether or not they can go out or whether or not they're going to have their electricity rationed? And the mindset isn't necessarily on the politics themselves, but rather on whether or not they can survive, right? So they're not worried about, for example, the current power struggle there is between the opposition and the Maduro regime. Definitely. Look, one of the biggest, I think this is perhaps the biggest lesson that I got since I arrived here. When you are outside the country and you are living a normal life, you have the opportunity to go out and read about what the interim government of Juan Guaido is doing. You can read about the history of Venezuela. 
because you have the time, you have the, the normalcy in your life. But when you are in Venezuela, with the level of misinformation, with the humanitarian crisis, with the problems that are going on every single day, that's where people are focused every single day. They are, as I said, in surviving mode. They are trying to put food on their tables. They are trying to solve their issues, whether it's electricity, water, food. So as you said, there is some kind of luxury uh, on having the time and having the, the, the peaceful, I don't know, environment to go out and actually read and actually think about the, the underlying issues behind the policies. For instance, when we were talking about hyperinflation, you and I could be debating about what are the incentives for the government to devaluate the currency. Uh, but when you are on the ground trying to survive, just working out, uh, you are just thinking about the effects that that has in your every single day. And, and as I said, that's one of the main issues that we have in Venezuela right now. That people are just focused on their everyday struggles. And no one really has the time to really think through uh, these issues. And that's whether or not they also want to stay. Exactly. Venezuela used to have north of 30 million people living in the country. And after the largest exile in the hemisphere's history, now we're looking at a country that's only going to have maybe 26 million people living in the country. Uh, this is an unprecedented statistic if we think about it, because in this side of the world, we're not used to this sort of thing happening, especially in a country that's not going through a civil war. This is this is like Darfur on a grander scale. And part of the reason I'm doing this podcast, again, is the fact that it's just so criminally underreported and something does need to change. Going back to the sanction situation that we were talking about in the National Review article, something that you had argued that needs to be done is... And as far as the United States response to the situation, you argue that the United States sanctions have some fault, which I think it's hard to disagree with, given the fact that they're curtailing the exports of which the the Venezuelan economy is reliant upwards to 90%, which is, of course, the fault of the regime and the regime before it under Chavez for not diversifying the economy. But regardless, that's a situation that we're in now. And so according to the article, you said that you should, or the United States should reevaluate the desirability of the sanctions that have been imposed on Venezuela's oil industry, namely on PDVSA. So could you expand on that so that the listeners can sort of understand why, unfortunately, it has led to the sorts of consequences that we've uh, talked about? Yes, I mean, first of all, I think we need to say it and say it again. The only responsible of the humanitarian crisis and the economic collapse of Venezuela, which is an economic collapse of over 70% of her GDP, unprecedented uh, in, the, in the modern history of the Western Hemisphere, the only responsible is the regime of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro. That needs to be clear, and I have written a lot about it. Now... When talking about the sanctions, we cannot deny that the sanctions have worsened the situation. And in this article, I ended by making that conclusion, that the U.S. needs to revalue how desirable are these sanctions of the Treasury against the Venezuelan oil industry. And even though I didn't 
write it down in the article. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is the one that he put in the article, which is that geopolitically is a problem that you have Venezuela having to rely on Iran. Again, because the sanctions prohibit all countries from doing business with Venezuela. So Iran was the only country that could do it because they're already sanctioned. They have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, Venezuela is giving Iran control of El Palito refinery. It's giving gold to Iran. And God knows what else they're doing, what other contracts they're having. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is because exactly that. It's because the sanctions, they're exacerbating an already horrible situation. And the only people who suffer from these specific kind of sanctions are the people. Because if you have people doing lines of for gasoline that take days, that's adding another issue to the issue, to the old issues that we already have in Venezuela. So mm -hmm. the sanctions are having this unintended consequence. Because gasoline, like people that the oligarchs people who are connected to the regime, the officials, they have gasoline, whether PDVSA produce 7,000 or whether you have gasoline everywhere. They will always have it. But the people that will suffer the most are the everyday people. And that's why I made that uh, conclusion to that article uh, because I don't see any, any point in doing those kind of sanctions as, as an end. They could be a mean to maybe negotiate something with the regime but not as an end because there, there, there is no, there is no point in that. Very true. I think there, those are salient points. Um, they definitely cannot be an end. They need to be a means to an end. I am I'm mostly in agreement with you. My main concern, and maybe you can elaborate on your thoughts on this here, Jorge, is going back to that key word negotiating. This regime has shown time and time again that they are unwilling to negotiate in good faith, not just with the opposition, but with the international community. And every time that they've been called out on everything from clumsy economic mishaps to severe human rights violations, they always, always revert to admit nothing, deny everything. So going back to the political situation. We're at a crossroads, I would say, because Venezuela's future, I believe, hangs in the balance and is contingent on the results of two different events. Number one, the presidential elections here in the United States and the National Assembly elections on December 6th. So what exactly would you say are the, are the general thoughts of Venezuelans on the ground that are thinking about these sorts of things? I think probably they're going to be commenting a little bit less about the presidential elections just because they're not there. Although, you know, they're very much on top of how the United States responds to the regime itself. But I guess my general question with all of this is, what, um, what are you seeing on the ground as far as the, uh, the general sentiment towards these upcoming elections, both in the United States, but more so in Venezuela? Look, I, your second question, this last question you made uh, about the, the election, for example, that's the easy question, I think. No one that I know 
really thinks that this will be fair and free elections and no one that I know will even go out and vote these elections. People do not trust the electoral system in Venezuela and they have reasons for that. Uh, mm -hmm. Political parties are not allowed to compete. You have political prisoners. You have most political leaders in exile. You don't have any way to communicate your message. So the parliamentary elections in Venezuela no one is really paying attention to that. In relation to the elections in the U.S., a ton of Venezuelans who live outside Venezuela or, or as you said, who have the privilege of being on top of these issues, they are really paying attention to that. But the vast majority of people are not. The vast majority of people, they know who Trump is. They know some of his maybe policies or his, um, I don't know, uh, narratives, but but that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, that does not uh, co it conflicts with your um, analysis, which is very true. The election in the U.S. will be crucial uh, because I think Biden and Trump has two very different approach of handling regimes like Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And your first question, I think, is I think that's the real difficult one, the one about the negotiation. This regime has been unwilling to negotiate anything. And of course, especially political power. So I will, even though I said that negotiations could be something that the end of the sanctions, I will not be one of those who say, yeah, let's lift every sanction and let's negotiate in good faith because that's, uh, that's idealism, that's being naive. Um, so whether or how can we use the sanctions to leverage or position towards the regime for an eventual political change? I think that's an excellent question. I don't have a, an excellent answer, but I think that's an excellent question we should be asking ourselves. Uh, because the sanctions indeed have uh, create issues for the regime. Uh, of course, they have, as you said, they can do business with Iran, Russia, Turkey, whatever. But it's really difficult what the sanctions are imposing on the regime, on their finances and their partnerships, and especially the oil industry. So that, this will be my, my big answer. Uh, I see this more as an academic. How can we use the sanctions towards negotiating some stuff with the regime, either a political mm -hmm. transition or at least some kind of economic liberalization? Uh, I think that's a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. And it's a pertinent one, too, because... Like you said, no one, I would say even on the world stage, the European Union, the United States, most countries at large, um, especially the ones that recognize uh, Juan Guaido as interim president, of which there are about 60 now, they don't believe that this regime is going to participate in good faith and no, they are and more, more than likely going to steal the election in the same way that they stole the election back in 2018 using the exact same tactics that they used when they stole the election then, which of course included um, things like having a national electoral council that is completely impartial and barring Democrat, or I was gonna say Acción Democrática, but uh, some of these other, I guess, these, these political parties that make up the G4, the group of four, um, yeah. having, having their image, their likeness, their logo all co-opted by 
false opposition figures, ones that are bought and paid for by the regime, essentially doing so to create some semblance of legitimacy, right? Yes, I think I, I, I think it's pretty clear the demands that we have that they can they don't want to uh, surrender. We want international observancy. And remember, I said all these things in Washington uh, that month in 2018, explaining people why uh, that was a sham election. Because we need international observancy. We cannot have free and fair elections when we have political prisoners. We cannot have free and fair elections when you have when you don't have opposition political parties allowed to compete, and when people are afraid because if they vote for the opposition candidate they will lose their subsidies or their benefits. It's impossible, and they they have this the the electoral the the, the electoral committee is not impartial. It's extremely impartial. And as you said, there's no indication that they will negotiate that or surrender that. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's full-on skepticism from the international community, so much so that most countries, again, are unwilling to participate as international electoral observers. Although the European Union, for whatever reason, is, I don't know why, but they're fighting tooth and nail to try and legitimize these elections for whatever reason. Um the I think it's the foreign minister or one one of the top guys from the European Union, Joseph Borrell, has been to Venezuela numerous times, and uh, I have some friends that are in Venezuela, and I've seen based on their posts and based on their protests that that is something that is a, a strong sentiment in Venezuela. Any time that there are people who want to negotiate with this regime, and I think you can agree with me on this, Jorge people will definitely speak out on that. There is no one, absolutely no one, who believes that this regime is going to negotiate in good faith. So anytime that there's some sort of credible observer or someone that wants to be a credible observer, like Joseph Borrell, uh, on behalf of the European Union, Venezuelans speak out. And they will speak out because as drained as they may be emotionally, at, at the very least, I see the comments online and people are sick and tired of this regime staying in power. And, and they have every reason to feel that way because they're exhausted. They're exhausted and they're without recourse. And the only recourse at this point is to leave. But if there's a nationwide lockdown, then the idea of leaving itself is made even more difficult. It's impossible these days. And and I think that it's important that you say that because even though I said that people are misinformed and that they cannot inform themselves, as you said, everyone is sick about the situation. Everyone is frustrated about the situation. Everyone is every single day complaining that things are just not working the way they should. So there is, uh, out of 100 people, 95 people in Venezuela will tell you that Maduro needs to go. The problem is how. But the vast majority of people want that and and they demand that. They demand a change. As they should. Um, So I have just a couple of more questions here, Jorge. The first one I want to ask is um, when we talk about life in Venezuela, for the vast majority of Venezuelans that, again, are living these... um, these situations, in your estimation, because so many of them are censored, they're punished if they try and speak out 
online on social media because there are anti-free speech laws. They're called hate laws. I think they're called in Venezuela that are used to persecute and prosecute Venezuelans that speak out against the regime. If there was anything that Venezuelans wanted to say to the international community, um, I, I don't want to put you on the spot as sort of like the spokesman on their behalf, but um, for those that are living in Venezuela, just w what exactly do you think they would want to tell the world as far as their situation right now? Okay, so this is, this is really important because, and I think this is the first thing that they will say to the world, that, that we need you, that we need the democratic countries of this world and the people who believe in democracy and who believe in freedom to help us. Because as you said, this can happen to any country. Venezuela in the 1970s was a thriving economy a solid democracy. It was a country with social mobility. It was a country that received millions of immigrants from Europe, from Colombia. So I think that will be the first thing that we will say to the world, that we need you. Don't abandon Venezuelans. If you help us, we can find a way together to make a change. We all want a change. And we want a change not only because of material well-being, we really want to have our, our democracy back. People want their freedoms. People want to have free media outlets. People want to have free and fair elections. People want to have human rights, decency. We are not fighting for subsidies. We are fighting for rights. And I think that will be the first message that people will say uh, to the world. And I can, I can say this with a ton of... Uh, I can be sure of this because, uh, as you said, I, ha I have spoken in many universities about the economic and political issues of Venezuela. In some of them, I have done it as an academic. In others, uh, as a spokesman. Uh, because Venezuelans need this. Because when I go outside in the streets and I talk to, and I talk to the people, they are really tired about the situation. And it frustrates me that they do not see a way to channel that frustration. So I have talked to friends of my family uh, that, that they cry and, and they, they talk to me, look why they, they, the international community is not doing enough. And I tell them that, that they're trying, that they have their mistakes, but they're trying. So, and when they see, for instance, that Venezuela is even mentioned in places like the State of the Union in the U.S., or in the European Parliament, they feel that they are not alone because here in Venezuela there is a sense of loneliness that no one is hearing you, no one is listening to your complaints. There is a sense that we, everything is lost. But when they at least read the news that Venezuela was named in the European Parliament, they have some type of hope. So I think all these emotions, all these feelings is something that I will tell the international community. And in a more pragmatic sense, what I will ask the international community is to let's make a stronger alliance or let's make a stronger uh, discourse between people that are in Venezuela, Venezuelans outside Venezuela, and policymakers and academics that are not Venezuelan. And let's try to find a way in which we can talk to each other, 
in which we can create solutions because we need to create a solution to this mess. Because the problem of Venezuela is not only a problem of Venezuelans, it's becoming a, a regional issue, not only for the migratory crisis that is only comparable to Syria, as you said, uh, because of the problem with drug trafficking, because of this geopolitical mess that is creating this relationship between Iran and Venezuela. So this will be my pragmatic, uh, I don't know, comment to the international community. Let's find a way to work together and create solutions uh, that are neither naive nor irresponsible. It's trying to find a way of having pragmatic solutions that can solve Venezuela's issues. Yeah, wow. That was, uh, I, I could not have said it any better myself, Jorge. Thank you. If there's anything, listeners, that you should take away from, it's that we need the eyes and ears of the international community. As bad as things are and as much of a deadlock that there seems to be, again, the misconceptions, the misperceptions, uh, some of which I think is unfortunately intentional, it goes to the advantage of the regime's ability to stay. They're able to stay as long as they have because of their ability to lie, their ability to let the world know that things aren't nearly as bad as they are. But having stories like yours told through outlets like mine, and I don't want to put myself on a pedestal and say that I'm any better than I am, but I think that ability to have these stories told to the right people is supremely important because it puts things into perspective as they should be. No, it is. And yeah, and it's not putting you in a, in a pedestal. It's, it's the reality because I started talking about Venezuela in universities or in international media outlets back in 2017 because I was studying economics in the US and I wanted to help share these type of stories with the international community, because I knew that the international community was something fundamental for the cause. So, mm -hmm. and when I started doing that, a lot of people praised me, but no one took action. Like, they kept talking to the same, like, to, the, to their own echo chamber in Venezuela. Uh, and what you're doing is really important, because you are bringing stories from Venezuela, anecdotes, also, you're bringing people from the Guaido government. I, I heard your interview with Dr. Vanessa Hausman, uh, Newman. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because you are informing people in the, in the U.S. about the situation in Venezuela. And we need more of that. It's extremely important. So that way we have good information, but we also have information that can touch the hearts of people who really want to know what is like living in Venezuela or doing activism in Venezuela or researching about Venezuela. Thank you. Yeah, that's always been my aim, right? I, I want to try and get people to go that step further and want to research on their own accord. And that's something that I want to request of the audience today. I think that a way that you, the audience, might be able to help in this matter is to follow people like Jorge Raizate, who can tell you the perspective of someone who has lived it is living it, has lived here, and can tell you truly what's at stake moving forward. Right now, we're in the midst of a pandemic, but once this pandemic is over, we go back to normalcy, at least here in the Western world. That's not the case in Venezuela. In Venezuela, this is the norm. And that's something that I need the audience 
to understand. And I'm sure that Jorge can agree with me on that. So if you should take anything away from this, it's that this new norm has been the norm in Venezuela for the longest time, taken to a dystopian extreme. And finally, I just want to say that, as Jorge mentioned, these people that I interview or that I have interviewed throughout the course of the podcast over the past several months, I interview them because they are genuinely involved and have the genuine aim of trying to make a positive difference in this struggle with the tools that we have at our disposal. So with that, I want to request that you guys also follow Jorge, because apart from being very involved and very um, very knowledgeable on the matter, he's also a brilliant economist and a syndicated columnist. The guy writes all the time on this stuff, so follow his writings if you can. And um, I just want to put this plug in here for you, Jorge. Where can our listeners find you and your work if they want to continue to follow you and what you're doing and how you're speaking about the situation in Venezuela? So they can go, of course, to my social media, to Twitter, uh, mostly Twitter. That's what I use the most. I write frequently in places like National Review, uh, Public Discourse, and soon I will be opening an, my own, like, some kind of platform to write more often. And after this COVID-19 mess finishes, I will come back to give talks at universities and, and international conferences and things of that nature. Uh, send me a tweet if you want to connect, if you have any question about Venezuela, or if you want to know anything about the situation. Um, as you said, what all of us want to do is to spread the message of the Venezuelan people and to also encourage you, uh, American, Canadian, European, to protect your freedoms. Um, what happened in Venezuela, I don't want to happen in any other country. And I think the best way to prevent that is to understand what happened to us so we can all uh, work towards preventing that. Agreed. The first step in solving any problem, audience, is recognizing that there is one. Identify the problem and use the right sources. Jorge Raisati is an incredible source, so please follow him. I will have all of his information, links to his social media handles in the description to this episode. Jorge, thank you so much for being on this show. I really learned a lot, man. Thank you. Thanks to you, man. Thanks again for tuning in to the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. I'll see you all in the next one.